Welcome to the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. My name is Alessandro Arduino and I'm Principal Research Fellow at MEI. Today I'm extremely glad to have with us two experts and two very prolific writers uh, that have been focusing their research on Central Asia, Afghanistan and counterterrorism. Welcome Antonio Giustozzi and Raffaello Pantucci. Thank you. Thank you. Antonio Giustozzi holds the PhD in International Relations from the LSE and a Bachelor in Contemporary History from the University of Bologna, the alma mater. He was at the Crisis State Research Center in LSE and he served with the United Nations Assistant Mission to Afghanistan and is currently also affiliated with the role uh, uh, with Ruzi. He is uh, a very prolific writer and his most recent books are Koran, Kalashnikov and Laptop the Taliban at war and the Islamic State in Khorasan. Raffaello Pantucci, also associated al Ruzi, is a senior fellow at the International Center for Political Violence and Terrorism Research at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Study here in Singapore at NTU. And we are really looking forward to present in the following month his new book that is going to be published with Oxford University Press, Sinostan, China Inadvertent Empire looking at Chinese interest in Central Asia. Antonio and Raffaello, welcome again to be with us today in this discussion on the Islamic State in Khorasan province. As uh, I just mentioned, uh, Antonio, you published the book Islamic State uh, in Khorasan in 2018, if I recall correct. Uh, yeah. And uh, in, uh, in this book, uh, you trace uh, the evolution of the movement of uh, fighters uh, of founding from uh, Syria to Afghanistan. Since uh, you wrote this book, how uh, the relationship between uh, Islamic State in Syria and in Afghanistan has evolved? The floor is yours, Antonio. Well, uh, for sure, there is a relationship. Um, the Islamic State in Khorasan uh, certainly in recent times, you know, it's difficult, you know, you cannot really uh, figure out in real time where the fund is coming from. There's always a lag, you know, how much you investigate, you're not gonna find out uh, within weeks. It takes normally probably months to realize whether new sources of funding have turned up. So in, in this very moment, I'm not sure, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that two, three, four months ago, the, overwhelming source of funding was the caliphate, you know, the, the, uh, the central leadership of the Islamic State uh, operating from the Middle East. Uh, in fact, you know, the, the finance center of the Islamic State now is Turkey, you know, where, you know from where they operate, where, where they send the money, where they keep the money. Uh, and the, the money is coming definitely from there. Uh, they have a little bit of tax raising, you know, that is going on, but to be honest, they don't raise a lot because they don't control much. Uh, they can get some money occasionally from some smugglers, but even the smugglers, you know, why would they pay the Islamic State when, you know, they are holed up in some remote valleys in the mountains, you know, there's no particular reason for supporting them. So I would say probably 80% or so of the money comes from the Caliphate and the, that also gives the Caliphate a leverage, you know, they pay, but because they're in a position to dictate the line. And certainly the, the, the cadre of the Islamic State that we talked to were not the most senior people, but say in, in the middle, middle ranks, 
they do say that the current governor, Mujir, who is actually a Pakistani who was naturalized as Iraqi uh, when he was uh, living uh, under the, the caliphate, uh, has been imposed by the leadership. You know, that uh, in the past, the previous governors were all people chosen uh, by the uh, uh, Khorasan branch, you know, that internal discussion, often quite uh, turbulent discussions. And in fact, the trend was towards more and more internal disagreements over the, the personality, you know, the, the choice of the governor. And that's probably the reason why in the end, uh, the caliphate decided to impose his own candidate. You know, when Aslan Farouki, the previous one, was captured, there was no agreement, again, you know, within the uh, Khorasan branch about who should succeed him, the different components, uh, the candidates, the Pakistanis had some names, the Afghans had some other names, and the Central Asian didn't like either of them. So, you know, they couldn't agree with each other, and the caliphate decided, okay, we, we, we you know, we decide for you. And, and actually, it probably was a good thing, you know, from the point of view of the Khorasan branch, maybe not for many other people uh, beyond that, uh, because Al-Mujah here has been a bit better than his predecessors in kind of, you know, trying to keep uh, the Khorasan branch united. You know, there are real tensions that there have been, I think, uh, always within the different national and ethnic components. Um, and uh, not only ethnic, because, you know, Afghan Pashtun and Pakistani Pashtuns in reality don't seem to get along that much within Khorasan. Uh, and they have different views. It's a bit of a paradox, you know, the, the Islamic State is dominated, the Khorasan branch of, by Pakistanis, uh, even if largely operates in Afghanistan. By now, actually, the Islamic State in Khorasan should be renamed Islamic State in Afghanistan because Khorasan, there's not much left. You know, now you have Vilaya Pakistan, Vilaya Hind, you have separate sub-branches in Central Asia, and Iran, so you know, basically, they only really uh, nominally control operation in Afghanistan. But basically, I think uh, money gives leverage to the Islamic State uh, central leadership. Apart from that, you know, they have constant communication. There's not a lot of exchange of personnel. Even Al Mujahid, it took him several months before he could make it to Afghanistan from from Syria, where he was. So it's obvious, you know, it's not so easy for them to travel. Uh, of course, he was a relatively senior figure. Therefore, public trial was particularly problematic for him. But even for the average member, you know, uh, who doesn't have a known profile to the security agencies, it takes easily three months to move between Afghanistan and, and uh, the Middle East. They have to take very long tours, you know, so that of course, complicates the relationship. It's not possible for the caliphate, even if they wanted to, to send a lot of cards to kind of enforce, you know, his own um, template or whatever. Probably are talking about more like, you know, uh, maximum low tens of movements per month, uh, usually even less. So basically, if in a year they get two, 300 arrivals or, or departures is already, Quite a lot by their standards. 
Thank you, Antonio. You, you make a very interesting point. You mentioned also the um, presence of uh, cadres of uh, Islamic State uh, uh, in Central Asia. I'm sure you refer to Tajikistan and also in Iran. And I will come back uh, asking more questions on the topic. But now talking about Central Asia, I want to move to Raffaello. Uh, since the fall of Kabul, uh, uh, Central Asian country, especially the one that share a border with Afghanistan, uh, and I mean Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan, but also quite near Uzbekistan, uh, share uh, uh, a common and increasing anxiety on what is going to happen if there is going to be a spillover of violence. Uh, some country like uh, um, Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan uh, try to have uh, some kind of uh, economic cooperation, looking at the fact that uh, an economic collapse of Afghanistan is going to create new wave of migrants uh, and, of course, uh, of insecurity spreading in Central Asia. But Tajikistan opted for a, a different way, starting to have uh, at least two quite important war games with Russia. But now the floor is yours, Raffaello, and looking at from the Central Asia perspective. Well, first, uh, let me thank you, uh, Alessandro, and uh, uh, colleagues at MEI for the kind invitation to join you by video link uh, across town uh, here in Singapore. And it's delightful uh, to be on a panel with Antonio, who is really a, a true expert on uh, Afghanistan, and ISK in particular. Um, on Central Asia, I think, you know, broadly speaking, uh, Central Asians were not particularly ecstatic at the fall of Kabul to the Taliban so quickly. Um, I think we've seen since then that they've all sort of decided that they're going to try to live with the situation in different ways. Um, if we look at the border countries directly, so Turkmenistan, uh, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, we can see each of them have taken a slightly different path. Uh, the Turkmen have leaned very heavily into their relationship with the Taliban. Um, this was something that in many ways Ashgabat had signaled pre the fall of Kabul. And in fact, you know, the Taliban have had a relatively positive or at least uh, functioning relationship with the Taliban, with Ashgabat for some time. Um, it was long suspected that there's been some transit back and forth across those borders. Um, and there's even been discussion at various points that the Taliban were going to explore opening some sort of representative offices in Ashgabat. And the Turkmen government has offered themselves as sort of broker between the former republic uh, government and uh, the Taliban at various moments in time. So, you know, when Kabul fell uh, and even before, we could see that Turkmen have leaned very heavily into their relationship with the Taliban and have spoken very quickly about trying to reactivate um, the economic links that should naturally exist between uh, those two countries. Um, if we look instead at Uzbekistan, we can see that the Uzbeks started off with a slightly more skeptical view. And I think if you'd visited Tashkent any time over the past few years, you would see that the Uzbeks were on the one hand recognizing that, you know, the Taliban seemed to be coming to a position of power and influence, but you could also see a high level of concern from their perspective about how that might play out and what that might actually mean. Um, so what I think you see from their perspective is a willingness to kind of lean in to build a relationship with the Taliban, uh, operating on the assumption that this is now a kind of de facto government that they share a border with, and therefore they need to have some sort of a functioning relationship with if they do not want to see a sort of, you know, a total collapse, a sort of closure of an important border for them, um, and, you know, potential for instability to, you know, affect their immediate region. Um, but at the same time, we've seen them strengthening their direct borders and also work with elements of the former regime to help them, for example, flee from, uh, from, uh, from the country and sort of get out to the West. Um, and then if we look over to Tajikistan, we see the Tajiks taking the completely opposite approach, which is instead to offer themselves as something of a home for any kind of resistance 
and particularly the Northern Alliance resistance that had made up a good chunk of the former government that was ruling Kabul before uh, the Taliban took over, and has offered itself quite openly as a home for these, uh, for these groups and for these factions, and has made no pretense of the fact that they are willing to support them in many ways against the Taliban. At the same time, the government in Tajikistan has maintained a relationship with the Taliban, including economic links in terms of sending electricity and in terms of, you know, continuing to allow sort of back and forth of borders and trying to see if there's ways of engaging in a way to kind of reduce tensions. And this is something they've done particularly through uh, the Pakistanis, who are kind of, I think, uh, the Taliban's key international interlocutor. But I think the important thing to think about within these kind of media relations is the backdrop. And to look at the backdrop, the backdrop really stretches beyond concerns around ISK. And the backdrop for the Central Asians is that pre-September 11th, all of these countries had faced, I mean, the exception here is Turkmenistan, where it's very difficult to know exactly what was ever going on because of the very closed nature of the country, both pre-9-11 and subsequently. Um, but if we look at all the other countries, they'd had large scale incidents of terrorism or instability or violence that had links to Afghanistan. Now, it's important to note that the links that they had were not so much to the kind of Pashtun community and group that really make up the Taliban, but was more to other kind of fellow travelers of the Taliban, if you will, who often operated under kind of Taliban protection or used territory or camps that the Taliban would, you know, let them use in their territory to try to launch attacks in kind of Central Asia. Um, so there's kind of a long history of this potential instability in Central Asia that they've been worried about, but they point and the important point to note about this is that from their perspective, this instability actually didn't necessarily link directly to the Taliban. It was a case of the Taliban offering these people protection. And in some cases, these groups had fought very closely with the Taliban over time. Um, but it was really the fact that, you know, it, it was these other kind of Central Asian groups that would operate under the kind of in, in, in Taliban protection. And why this is important to note is because then if we trace this forward to the ISKP threat. Now, ISK is interesting because ISK sells itself as a kind of as a pan-regional movement. This is not, you know, in many ways, the Taliban, and, you know, here I, I very much refer to Antonio's knowledge on the subject, but I mean, the Taliban are really a Pashtun movement, fundamentally. You know, they have sort of other elements within them, but this is fundamentally an organization that comes from the Pashtun community in Afghanistan. Um, whereas ISK sells itself as a kind of a much more part of a global brand of the Islamic State, which started in the Levant, but has since grown to be this kind of organization with all these branches and links uh, all over the place with ISKP being uh, now a particularly prominent uh, a particularly prominent element. So it's an organization that has a narrative that's appealing to a kind of a more pan-regional grouping, which means that you could see kind of Central Asian groups and factions who maybe are unhappy working under the Taliban or, you know, have, are, are more interested in the kind of more globalist narrative that ISK offers would find that quite attractive. And so from their perspective, ISK growing as a threat in Afghanistan is something that poses a particularly worrying kind of twist to the threat for the Central Asian countries, because it's a threat that's not directly linked to the group that's now in power. But it's another group that's kind of beyond this group that, you know, has a narrative which is kind of intimately against their governments already, um, you know, in a way that is sort of immediately threatening to them. The other sort of twist of this I'd add is that, you know, if you go back and look um, at uh, history, I mean, it's, it's interesting to see 
um, you know, the, the, the kind of menace from ISK in particular, how it's seen in Central Asia, is something that kind of comes and goes. Now, broadly speaking, uh, Central Asians are sort of worried about this potential threat uh, for some of the reasons I've kind of outlined. And, and we've seen in some countries that there has been a kind of visible presence of IS on the ground. Tajikistan, which you mentioned a few times in your comments, is I think the most prominent example of this, where we've had, you know, a number of incidents over the past few years within the country that in some cases appear to have been linked to IS factions or groups who had some very prominent members of the security forces in Tajikistan go and join the Islamic State. And if you go look at the sort of uh, the fighters from Central Asia who went to fight with the Islamic State in uh, in the Levant, you know, the Tajik community was one of the most substantial and it was also one of the most violent and one of the most aggressive groups on the ground. There was also large numbers of Kazakhs, of Uzbeks, of, um, of Turkmen um, and of Kyrgyz who went to fight as well. Um, but, you know, the Tajik community in particular is quite notable in its kind of, uh, in, in both its prominence and also its violence on the ground. So, you know, you've got a particular country there that has a particularly kind of menacing link to IS, which now has potentially a growing faction next door, which might sort of accelerate that. And if we're looking at kind of Central Asian security capability to manage these potential threats, I would argue that Tajikistan is probably the one where you'd see the most kind of concerns um, in terms of the degree to which the government is capable of maybe mitigating its threats. And I think that is in part echoed in the fact that we've seen a real focus of attention by both Russia and China in terms of trying to bolster Tajik security capability, recognizing that this potential you know, weak spot exists in the kind of links uh, from Afghanistan uh, up into Central Asia. So, you know, the only the only final point I'd add on this is that I think the ISK uh, uh, boogeyman, um, it's often quite difficult to parse from narratives that you see from Central Asia about the degree to which they are actually concerned and the degree to which you are seeing kind of rhetoric that is being a bit inflated around the organization. There is quite a long history of uh, of, of sort of uh, of leaders and, and of Russia, the Russian government in particular, boosting <laughs> the uh, threat from the Islamic State in Central Asia and talking it up to a very high degree um, in Afghanistan in the past. And it's interesting when I used to visit Central Asia and I had the fortunate opportunity of visiting most of the capitals uh, shortly before uh, this uh, disaster of COVID took over. Remember, we're all locked in our uh, individual nations. Um, was that in all of these places, there was a, a degree to which they were hesitant to really uh, go as far and cite the numbers that you would hear cited, for example, from Moscow, because there was a degree of concern about how much they thought that this was simply a way that outside powers were trying to boost a threat on their borders to then give them a pretext and a reason to come and kind of strengthen it. And so it's always interesting to look at this ISK threat through that lens, because there's always a question within this region, how much geopolitics is playing into the degree to which countries are examining these threats and responding to them. Um, and I'll maybe stop there. Yes, and as you mentioned uh, at the beginning uh, of uh, your presentation uh, that uh, several Central Asian countries are willing to build relations with the Taliban. And also we already witnessed the Taliban envoy, starting with Mullah Baradar, uh, meeting with uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Wang Yi in China, in Tianjin, and subsequently meeting in Doha and in Moscow. Uh, Antonio, in your opinion, uh, this uh, willingness of the Taliban to engage uh, with other country uh, is going uh, locally in Afghanistan to be perceived as a kind of tarnishing their uh, Islamist image. And this can create uh, a driver to increase uh, recruit and flow of local fighter uh, to the Islamic State. Um, well, I think center there will be some people within the Taliban who 
will have uh, reservations. They had the reservation in the past, you know, the Taliban have had relations at the regional level for a long time. Um, basically, within months of starting the insurgency, they already were linking up first to Saudi Arabia, uh, they started the first to pay some money to the Taliban because at the time they were worried about the Afghan elections, you know, they were worried about democracy flourishing in Afghanistan, then they were reassured by, uh, you know, developments in Afghanistan, that democracy will not flourish there, but the beginning was a concern for them. Uh, then the Pakistanis uh, started getting involved, and this is well known, but uh, by 2005, the Iranians were getting involved, and later the Russians, Chinese, uh, different stages and so on, you know, several other countries. So they have quite a lot of experience, and many of these engagements were controversial. The engagement with Iran caused some friction. There were some people who were uh, hostile to the idea within the Taliban. They always been, you know, even now, you know, for example, the Akhanis were very critical of this, and there was one of the reasons for them starting to distance themselves from the leadership, you know, the, the, the Akhani network, um, recognized, they actually started in such before the Quetta Shua, the Taliban, but then uh, they they joined it, they acknowledged the leadership, but then in 2007, 2008, they started distancing themselves from the Quetta Shura. Uh, and one of the reasons, there are several reasons, but one of the reasons was also their relation with Iran. Um, and then when they established links to Russia in 2015, 16, that also was even more controversial because whereas many Taliban accept the Islamic Republic of Iran is a kind of Islamic regime, you know, even if there's some reservation about some aspects of it, uh, Russia definitely is not, you know, and Russia is seen by many, I would say the majority, probably the Taliban as a enemy of Islam, you know, basically on a par with America, because of course, you know, Russia doesn't have a very great record of uh, uh, supporting Islamic causes, quite the contrary, you know, you look at, uh, People still remember the war in Chechnya, of course, but they also remember, of course, the war in Afghanistan and some of the older Taliban fought in that war, and also Syria. You know, so so basically, Russia's record, from the point of view of many members of the Taliban, uh, is very dirty. You know, um, and it, I think at one point, the leader Batullah, when he was pushing for these policies um, towards Russia, he risked his job. You know, at one point he. There was kind of revolt within the leadership and they're very critical of him. Um, at the end of the day, as far as the leaders are concerned, it's only a matter of time before reality uh, and, and realism assert themselves. You know? So no regime can survive in a vacuum. So they need to uh, be able to trade. They need to be keep the, you know, the borders open and they need funding. They need funding for, for the regime. So, I think, you know, although there are these ideological um, uh, power plays going on, at the end of the day, ideology cannot survive without some kind of, you know, uh, uh, connection with the reality. Um, so I think the most extreme uh, jihadists will think that God will provide and no compromise is needed, uh, can create a problem in the short run, but they will end up like, you know, far left, groups uh, ended up in the 20s, you know, after the, the Bolshevik revolution. So the permanent revolution, you know, if it is not sustainable economically, you know, it can go on for six months, but then, you know, once you run out of money, you can't keep army going. 
arm is going, it can keep states functioning. Then the debate shifts. And, and I think it will shift and it's already shifting. And you can see that, for example, the most prominent of the, um, or the equivalent or the Afghan Taliban equivalent of the Trotskites, so the, the Akhanis, are already uh, trying to come, come up with a more realistic approach. And uh, this is gradually becoming evident. So the exact terms of you know what they want, probably we'll never know what they really, what really is in our mind because they don't really produce a lot of literature or whatever you know, on this. But it's clear that they are trying to uh, legitimize themselves and recycle themselves into some kind of mainstream. You know, I think the real debate now um, within the Taliban is not between those who say. Uh, jihadism uh, till the end, you know, or jihadism forever, and those who want to kind of reintegrate into the world, but between two different uh, options in terms of reintegration into the world. So the, the old uh, South and Taliban leadership would like to have uh, constructive relations with the West, also in the expectation that some money would flow. But, you know, I think in also in terms of counterbalancing, the power of the regional countries, which they perceive as quite prevaricating. You know, they had quite a few brushes with Pakistan recently, but also with Iran, uh, with China, uh, in fact, even with almost everybody, you know, to, to various degrees. Uh, and, and they think that having relations with Western powers would kind of a little bit counterbalance uh, this kind of power of the regional countries, a bit like the Central Asian. You know, the Central Asians have no ideological sympathy for the West. N none of them are into liberal democracy, I would argue. But uh, they were happy to have the Americans around in Afghanistan, you know, contrary to the other regional countries, because they saw American presence as a way to counterbalance the power of Russia and China. So I think you know the Afghan Taliban, especially the Southern Taliban, see this also as something that would benefit them. On the other hand, you have the people like the, the Akhanis who believe that there's a risk for them, that uh, engagement with Western powers will uh, always come at a price, especially for them, you know, that the price of re-engagement, the price of constructive relations, the price of keeping some flow of money going is the marginalization of people like Sirajuddin Akhani and others who have, you know, this kind of checkered uh, record. Uh, and they believe that uh, it is instead possible to build, even for them, a relationship, if not with all the regional power, at least with some of them, you know, and of course, they, they can see that even Al-Qaeda, you know, basically Al-Qaeda the same, Al-Qaeda supports, I think, this, this line. Al-Qaeda is as constructive, uh, relations with the two countries in the region, you know, Iran and Pakistan. And they believe that uh, maybe they can, to some degree, you know, with some mixed formulas, they can extend that uh, to other countries. Of course, they would be pressed to pay, uh, and I think they might be willing to pay it, uh, but uh, they believe that uh, they can do without, you know, they, the Emirates can do without uh, the Western powers, you know, that it, it is actually better for them if it, if it does without it. And I think this is some, somehow encouraged by some people within the Pakistani security agencies who believe they can convince the other regional powers to accept this. Um, and 
they're lobbying, you know, the other regional powers. So now there's not a lot of enthusiasm. The Iranians are particularly skeptical. You know, the Iranians are now, despite having supported the ascent to power of the Taliban, now they are the most critical among the regional powers, including India from, you know, India, of course, has no part in this and no relationship with the Emirates. But the Iranians are the ones who actually uh, blocking, if you like, or delaying the recognition of the Taliban. They have a lot of reservation because they believe they've been uh, essentially cheated by the Taliban leadership. And they're not, they have no appetite for any kind of relationship right now with the Akhanis. You know, not, not just because the Akhanis are Akhanis, but because they, they see the Akhanis prevaricating uh, and uh, actively marginalize actors, even within the Taliban, who are linked to Iran. So they will have a hard time to convince the Iranians. I, I have the impression that they, they have more uh, hope that they could convince China to some kind of settlement where, of course, the price to pay would be the, the Uyghurs have to disappear at least, you know, or maybe reappear somewhere else, in, 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 you know, behind, um, behind uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, iron, iron doors. Um, but, you know, I think the deal is that, be like with Pakistan, you know, that Al-Qaeda can, and, and some related groups can remain in Afghanistan as long as they direct their activities elsewhere. You know, and, and there were signs that the Chinese, for example, in, in the recent past, were becoming more supportive, for example, the Kashmiri course, you know, that of course was a favor to Pakistan, but something like that, you know, something that would uh, try to reorient uh, this energy, if you like, um, in, in different directions. And this is something that's not so unusual because the Iranians do it. The, I think the Turks have done it uh, in various ways. Um, but but that at, at the end of the day, the Chinese will trust people like the Akhanis, you know, uh, remains to be seen. The Pakistan are lobbying very actively. They're presenting the Akhanis. And there is some grounding reality for that, you know, as much better organizers uh, than the sovereign Taliban. So if you like, you know, uh, the, the advantage of people at the Akhanis from the perspective of the region is, you know, they present themselves as somebody who actually could run a state. We have the southern Taliban are seen as, you know, uh, you know, old guys who live in a, in a, in a, in a bygone world uh, and, and they don't have a realistic approach to how to do things, you know. So basically, the Akhanis says, you know, if you really want to implement the policies that we are sponsoring as, as Taliban, you need the iron fist, you know. And the, this idea of convincing people, uh, talking them into uh, accepting Sharia as they interpret it, you know, they're not going to work in Afghanistan as it is today. You know, you need to have essentially a, a totalitarian government, basically. That's the only way it's going to work, or at least a very authoritarian one. And I think this might have some appeal. I mean, maybe not now, but uh, as the Taliban struggle to maintain order, to prevent chaos, to maintain stability, which is the main concern, you know, in the region. Then some of the countries in the region, thanks also to active Pakistani lobbying, might warm up to the idea that the less uh, the lesser evil becomes somebody like the Akhanis would, of course, form also the alliances within the Taliban, you know, trying to co-opt other groups as well, could be acceptable if they are willing to compromise on certain issues, especially the issue of foreign jihadists, you know, which is the main concern for China and Russia. So I think those could be, you know, the, the, the line of the, uh, you know, the terms of the debate is going on.
No, I will say that you mentioned China, so we can address the elephant in the room uh, with foreign fighter and especially the Uyghur. I mean, uh, in a country like in Central Asia, like Raffaello mentioned, there is uh, also an increased anxiety on Tajik coming back from the Middle East, uh, on Uzbek especially. There is a group, if I recall correct, uh, Imam Bukhari Jamaat, uh, that is in Syria and mostly uh, is um, uh, composed by uh, trained and battle-tested battle uh, Uzbek fighter. But then um, again, uh, the usual discussion with the Uyghur is how many? What is the number? How many are able, capable to move from the Middle East, uh, uh, reaching Afghanistan? And then now that uh, Mullah Baradar underlined how it's important for uh, uh, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan uh, having Chinese Belt and Road support, then at one point, and this was a recent article from a colleague of mine here at MEI, James Dorsey, who mentioned that China is going to present the bill, and the bill will be expatriation of Uyghur fighter in Afghanistan. Is this going to happen? And this question is for both of you, uh, Rafael first, and then Antonio. And after this question, I just uh, want to open the floor uh, to the question from the public. Please feel free to use the chat function and send to MEI events your question, uh, and then I will read to our presenter. Thank you. Rafael, the floor is yours. Thank you. Sorry, I had a uh, family issue in the background. Um, look, I think uh, I think that the um, you know the, the China's preeminent concern with Afghanistan, with the region more broadly, is uh, you know a security one, and it's a security one that's seen through the lens of Uyghur militants, um, and they see this particular group as a threat that has the potential to undermine you know Beijing through you know causing instability in Xinjiang. Um, so this is kind of the core concern, and this is kind of the first issue that I think you see on the roster when Chinese officials engage with the region. And it's not a new concern either. If you go back to 1994, when Li Peng did his famous tour of Central Asia, where he visited all the capitals, including Mongolia, but not Dushanbe, because of course it was in the midst of a civil war at the time, um, you know, Uyghurs were mentioned at most of these stops. And he said, you know, this is our concern. And at the time in China, there was more instability happening out in, in Central Asia, in, in Xinjiang. Um, linked to Uyghur groups, um, you know, who were angry at the kind of state that they were living under, um, you know, and the Chinese would point to connections between this community and, you know, diaspora communities that exist in Central Asia. Um, and that's sort of been a consistent concern. And then what we see under the Taliban government, uh, the pre-9-11 Taliban government, is that, you know, the, the Chinese again lobbied uh, the Taliban government to do something about this group, but they did it through Pakistan. And Pakistan was very much the conduit for their contacts at the time with the Taliban. Now, I think what we've seen happen as the time has gone on is that, you know, China, um, you know, uh, has developed more direct relationships with the powers that be on the ground in Afghanistan. So whereas previously they were entirely dependent, I would argue, on these links uh, through Islamabad and their sort of very close relationship with the Pakistanis to, you know, have the conduit and the connections to, uh, uh, to whoever was in power in Afghanistan. I think what we've seen happen over time is that they've developed more direct relationship. And I think the important thing to note is that throughout this, Uyghurs have been a kind of a major concern from a Chinese perspective. Now, some would argue this is an exaggerated concern. Um, it's certainly true that if you go back and look, 
you know, in the past 20 years, there haven't really been many attacks you can point to confidently where there has been an incident in China that's had very clear connections to people in Afghanistan for certain. Uh, but even in, in neighboring countries in Pakistan or, or Central Asia, there has been violence in, in Central Asia and in Pakistan that has been in some cases potentially linked to some of these sort of Uyghur militants. But even that, it's quite difficult to pin down um, the details. But, you know, putting that to one side is still a very high concern from a Chinese perspective. And what's interesting is that even during the period and you had a kind of republic government in uh, Afghanistan, the Karzai government, and then subsequently the Ghani government, both of those governments are very willing to work with Beijing as well on trying to deal with this issue. And that, that sort of willingness to cooperate with uh, Beijing has transmitted seemingly over to the Taliban, um, but it's not clear how much it has translated over. Rhetorically, at least, um, it appears as though the Taliban have said that they're willing to try to do something about this. Um, and we've seen other factions within the kind of Taliban governance, you know, express a willingness to do this, whether they're doing this because they, you know, simply don't care about the Uyghurs, whether they're doing it for money, whether they're doing it for pressure from outside supporters. I think, you know, certainly, you know, any group that has a strong base of support in Islamabad will probably find itself under pressure by the Pakistanis to do something about this, because as I said, this is a preeminent concern for the Chinese, they will constantly be bringing up to um, the Pakistanis. So, you know, there is that level, but at the same time, it is notable that if you go look and, you know, the most recent engagement that we saw publicly between uh, Wang Yi and Mullah Baradar in Doha recently, you know, it was interesting that in the, in the framing of uh, Wang Yi's comments, um, uh, uh, the conclusion of the meeting was that they hoped and believed that the Taliban would do something about or would break links with, you know, Uyghur militants that they would term under the frame, the phrase, the East Turkestan Islamic movement um, in Afghanistan, um, which is interesting because that, of course, suggests that, you know, this link hasn't been broken yet, even though there has been a lot of lobbying to do something about it. And I think what we can translate this into is really that there is a tension within the Taliban uh, about what to do about this, you know, and how much to be willing to actually do about it. And there have been stories that have emerged from Afghanistan that the Taliban have sought to move these sorts of communities of Uyghurs away from the kind of border regions with China in a way of sort of placating the Chinese. There have been other stories that have emerged where, you know, there's been sort of very heavy pressure from uh, uh, Chinese intelligence and Chinese security forces going to Kabul to lobby and going to Islamabad to lobby, you know, proxies or, or directly, you know, elements in the, in the new Taliban administration about this problem. So there's a lot of sort of focus on this particular issue. And it's very clear that this is where the Chinese are leaning into very heavily. Um, and it's not clear that there is a sort of clear answer there. I think the other side to your sort of uh, your point was um, this question about, you know, uh, a potential for Belt and Road investment, the potential for money, you know, and, and China being seen as kind of this, you know, money uh, spigot, <laughs> which will open up and, you know, sort of release vast, you know, volumes of uh, dollars and wealth and yuan into, into Afghanistan and sort of transform the country. Um, I think that's still quite far off, frankly. But I think what's interesting is that whoever's empowering Kabul will see this golden bucket at the end of the rainbow. You know, whenever they're engaging with the Chinese, this will always be on the horizon because ultimately 
China is Afghanistan's richest and most influential neighbor with which it shares a direct border. Um, and that will always be the case, you know, no matter who's in charge in Afghanistan, this will always be true. And so there's always going to be incentive for whoever's empowering Kabul to try to have some sort of a functioning relationship with the Chinese and to find a way of accommodating these sorts of particular um, Chinese concerns, as complicated as they may be. Um, to sort of finally touch on, on the complexity question within the, the Taliban around this issue, you know, I think that there are different perspectives. I think, as I said before, any faction within the Taliban that has very close links to Islamabad will find itself under great pressure to do something about this because it is such a major Chinese concern. But when you get some of the other groups, I think there's other issues that come into play. And I think one big issue is the reality that in some cases, these Uyghur fighters have been fighting with the Taliban for 20 years or more. You know, so these aren't just a kind of alien group that just sort of arrived yesterday and, you know, the, they, you know, the, they're sort of immediately dispensable. I mean, they're married in, they're part of the community, they're part of the fabric of the Taliban, and they fought alongside them for a long time. And ultimately, the Taliban just won the war, you know? And so from their perspective, they've been delivered this wonderful victory. Why should they immediately turn on the allies that they fought together with to just, you know, dispense with them because of these, you know, groups outside, these Kafir countries, neighboring countries who weren't really supporting them before anyway? Why should they just throw them under the bus in advance of those these other countries who seem to have much more sort of fickle relationships with them. Um, the only final point around that is, of course, the fact that, you know, it, the, the Taliban don't just have, you know, Uyghur groups that they force alongside all the time. There are other groups, other factions within the organization as well. It's a relatively, I think, homogenous and hierarchical structure within the Taliban, but there are factions. And the concern always will be if the core is willing to just kind of throw a faction under a bus at request of someone external, what might that mean for others? You know, others might suddenly feel, well, hang on, is our position as secure as we think? Or is it possible that we might also get thrown under the bus as well when the winds change or when it's important to some sort of external uh, partner um, that the core, you know, turns against us? So I think there's a lot of issues at play here that mean this will always be a kind of issue. And I think we can see that it is still an issue that will sort of hang heavy over this. The only final point I'd add here was, you know, the idea was mentioned um, in some of Antonio's comments, and I think in, in, in some of the parts that you picked up, uh, Alessandro, that you know uh, the Chinese uh, would sort of lean in to recognize the Taliban. I think this is one thing that I have heard fairly consistently from you know Chinese interlocutors have been able to engage with uh, uh, recently and since the fall of Kabul is that you know Beijing's not going to be the first. You know, China is certainly not going to be the first country to stand up and say, you know, we formally acknowledge the Taliban government and, you know, all the things and things, you know, trappings that go with that. I mean, they are essentially de facto engaging with it as a government in Afghanistan already. You know, their foreign minister is meeting with the Taliban's putative foreign minister and deputy, you know, prime minister. So, you know, there is a kind of de facto recognition that's already happening. But I think the formal, the formal component of it, I don't think China will be the first to go forwards and do that because that would just suggest the level of ownership over Afghanistan's future and what the Taliban might be doing there, which I don't think Beijing wants to take responsibility for, aware that, you know, this is potentially quite an unstable government, an unstable situation that they're stepping into, and they don't want to be the ones sort of left holding the bag. I'll stop there. Antonio, the floor is yours, same question, and there's one that I think Rafaelo covered very widely, so the question is on the future. Are the Taliban throwing the Uyghur under the bus, yes or no? Yeah, they say, you know, current 
estimates of the number of Uyghurs there in Afghanistan coming from their hosts largely are that there are um, maybe 60 to 8 of them with the Islamic State. Uh, the number has been reducing in part because of casualties, also people uh, have been leaving where they're going, I don't know, you know, but there's been an outflow uh, and general demoralization of, you know, this um, uh, Uyghur uh, in, in, in Afghanistan in the last couple of years. Uh, and the, the group that is affiliated with Al-Qaeda is estimated to be around 150 men. And uh, there might be some who were with Islamic State who went, who moved back to uh, Al-Qaeda affiliated groups like the, uh, the ATIM, uh, which has not merged uh, with Islamic State. And well, actually the ATIM itself was leaning towards Islamic State, but then drifted back towards Al-Qaeda like some other Central Asian groups in the last um, year or two, as, as a result, of course, of the uh, decline of the, of the Islamic State image after the fall of the Caliphate, you know, the fall of Mosul, Iraq, etc. So in total, probably just over 200 of them, so not big numbers. Uh, and they tend to be, or they used to be based uh, until very recently, together with the other Central Asians, you know, actually mixing together in Kastak Valley of Badakhshan, which is a remote place. Um, which is has been under, outside government control for a long time, and it's no man's land even now. Although the Taliban have access, you know, but they don't actually control it. You know, there are overall several hundreds of Central Asians and Uyghurs there, uh, and and the mix, in the mingled, intermingled. You know, basically Islamic State and Islamic State. There isn't much difference on the ground. You know, they all sharing the same space, um, and. Uh, Sources within the uh, what used to be the government of Afghanistan, the Islamic Republic, say that just before the fall of Kabul, a key, a very important Taliban leader in Badakhshan approached the government asking for help in getting the Uyghurs out. So basically, was saying, you know, uh, we know what is coming. You know, there is pressure to hand them over to Pakistan, who will then hand them over to China. Uh, we cannot prevent that, uh, uh, but basically what's going to happen is they're not going to, of course, go to Pakistan. They will rather join the Islamic State. It was talking about the pro-Al-Qaeda ones, you know, the, the, the ones who are not already in the Islamic State. But we want to get them out, you know. It's not their first option to go to the Islamic State. They're tired. They want to, you know, retire, so to speak, from the jihad. But of course, the Geneva is still uh, imprisoned them or whatever. So going there is not an option. They would like to go anywhere, even to the States, Turkey, wherever, but wherever it takes them, they're willing to go, can you help? So basically you had this commander was actually usually seen as uh, close to Al-Qaeda approaching the government, asking to get these people out, possibly even America, which is quite, you know, quite a step to take. And of course then Kabul fell, so nothing happened, you know, but that already gives a sense of the fact that already within the Taliban, already at the stage, uh, this was seen as coming. You know, the, the pressure from China was already felt. Then after the fall, the pressure, of course, increased further, and Taliban sources in Kastak say that they did go. In fact, we, one of my researchers spoke to one of the... Um, uh, 
uh, one of the uh, one of my researchers managed to speak to a commander of uh, the Taliban who was one of those who went to Kastak to basically tell the Uyghurs, uh, you need to move, you need to come with us, we need to relocate you away from the Tajik border, away from the Chinese border, uh, and maybe you should also hand over your weapons to us. And there was a basically a, a upsurge of, uh, you know, a, a revolt basically. Not only the Uyghurs didn't want to follow, but the Central Asian Kastak were totally against, you know, and also some senior Taliban commanders intervened uh, and uh, requested the leadership to, <clears throat> to freeze uh, this operation. Because the Central Asian, as uh, fellow pointed out, fought, you know, apart from this kind of solidarity with the Uyghurs, the comrade announced, but also they the felt we are next, you know. If we allow the Uyghurs to be deported uh, to China or even, you know, marginalized, disarmed, whatever, it's obvious that then, you know, the Chinese, the Russians, the Central Asian government will put pressure on the Taliban to do the same with us, you know, what, what prevents them from going down that route? Uh, so that was frozen. You see, the Uyghurs have moved, uh, uh, possibly because they don't, don't want to be within reach of the Taliban, where they're gone is not clear. But I think it's pretty clear that the, the option that um, these commanders who, actually have a relation also with uh, the Akhanis, you know, with Akhid and the Akhanis, Taliban commanders, is realistically, we won't be able to resist China's pressure forever because China is not just China. You know, the Russians will support the Chinese view. The Pakistani will not be able to resist because the Chinese will uh, centrally uh, keep pressure on the Pakistanis very much. Uh, and the Central Asian states, of course, are not going to show any sympathy for the Uyghurs, not, not for the Central Asian. So, you know, uh, realistically, the Emirate sooner or later has to give up. So their option is, you know, uh, let's get them out. You know, let's buy time, delay things until we manage to relocate them. And then, it's, of course, China won't like it, but they kind of fight accompli. You know, once they're gone, they're gone, and the Chinese will be upset at the beginning, but then, you know, we'll have to deal with us and, and settle uh, for a jihadist-free Afghanistan, you know, um, and and uh, we believe that these guys are probably ready for retirement, you know, if uh, there are a lot of them in Turkey, so if they're able to go to Turkey, probably they would be quite there, you know, maybe do some fundraising, you know, some kind of uh, activities in support of the cause, but they wouldn't be too dangerous to China anyway. So I think this is a line that uh, even Al-Qaeda is sponsoring. Al-Qaeda, uh, as I mentioned, the Khanis know that some kind of compromise will be needed, you know, at least at the regional level. Um, and uh, I think, you know, they are not going to hand them over. You know, it's impossible for them to hand them over because they will be betrayed of the cause or completely discredit Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda, uh, etc. But the other option is just getting them out, you know, getting them out, disappear them somewhere um, in some safe place. And I think that the, the route they, they're going to take, um, and maybe they're already doing it because they said the Uyghurs seem to have moved, you know, where they moved, I don't know, you know, and probably they're not going to tell us, you know, but maybe they're already on their way out, you know, they will take time, it will have to be, you know, small groups moving, you know, it's not going to be a simple operation to relocate them. But I think realistically is the, is the only uh, option that would work for them. 
So whereas within the Taliban, there are those who think, you know, we could gain so much in terms of external support if we uh, were more, uh, you know, willing to hand over some of these guys, or, you know, maybe in a disguised way, you know, have them captured uh, by somebody, you know, you don't need to advertise the kind of things as it happened, or having some bomb falling on the head, you know, from some mysterious uh, drone or mysterious plane. Uh, so there are also this kind of position, but basically in Badakhshan, uh, the southern Taliban don't have much leverage, they don't have much influence, they're a minority, you know, they're supporters, uh, so I don't think they actually have the ability to implement their policy, and this is another selling point for people like Sirajuddin, who are telling, you know, the, the region, at the end of the day, you don't like us, you have a relation with the other guys, but the other guys can do much, you know, for you because they talk a lot, they drink a lot of tea, they talk a lot. But um, when it comes to action, you know, in Badakhshan or in the southeast or in the east, they really don't have much power to do things because we are in charge. To be honest, we're charging Kabul too, you know. So, you know, let's face the reality: you are, we are the ones you have to negotiate with, you know, and you have to make a deal with us. I think this is essentially the, the message. And now I think that we can open the floor to the question. Uh, we have received more than 11 questions, and the first one is for Raffaello. And is Raffaello said in his opening remarks uh, that there is a regret. I think that was the word used in Central Asia over the Taliban takeover. Can we widen it and get his perspective? Like uh, particularly US rivals uh, practically gloated a few months ago. What do you think? Uh, they are now being forced to confront China, Russia, Pakistan. I mean, I think that, um, you know, there, there is a, uh, you know, there, there's always an interesting dichotomy, if you will, uh, when you look at even actually China's uh, perspective on uh, Afghanistan when it was, you know, ruled by the Republic. Um, in the, on the one hand, uh, there was a kind of degree of concern that the United States had this kind of forward operating base, military operating base, right on their borders. Uh, that was, you know, you know how, you know, fighting. It had big presence, thousands of men, uh, sophisticated technology. You know, there was a, there was this presence sitting right there, which you know they always worried. Well, this could be used against us potentially as well. But this was balanced against a kind of other side of the coin, which is well, at least someone else is there, kind of dealing with the problem. You know, because they looked and they said, well, you know, Afghanistan has got a pretty long history of being chaotic, of having instability, of having terrorist groups fighting within it, you know, creating problems for neighboring countries. Um, you know, on the basis of that, if someone else is there kind of keeping a lid on that pot, great, you know. So there was always this kind of balance and it kind of depended the moments at which you saw it swing one way or the other way or one way or the other, you know. And so, you know, I would argue that when, you know, under President Obama, you started to get the discussion of first the surge and then the withdrawal that was due to follow. Um, you know, you saw after that moment, you saw an increase in Chinese particular uh, efforts and attention to try to strengthen their, um, their, uh, their presence and their protection in some way and their kind of security footprint around that region. And this was to try to mitigate the potential dangers and threats that were sort of coming out or that they thought might start suddenly emanating from Afghanistan. So, you know, you had this uh, uh, the swing and there you saw the swing go particularly strongly in that direction. And in some ways that was echoed around the region where you saw around the region, people started thinking, oh crap, if the Americans are going, what does this mean? <laughs> you know, and oh, do we need to start to prepare? Do we need to start to worry? But then the Americans didn't leave. And so at that point, you saw their concerns scale back again. 
And so then you started to see instead this rising sense of potential concern that maybe, you know, the Americans are here for ulterior reasons. This is a forward deployment base to ultimately try to come and cause trouble for us. And for the Central Asians in particular, you know, they always worried about, you know, uh, color revolutions, uh, which is a concern that they share with the Russians in particular, but also with the Chinese. And it's this fear that, you know, popular uprisings will overthrow the kind of established order in these countries. And, you know, they had a history for this. When you go back and look at uh, in 2005, um, uh, yes, it was 2005, when you had this, uh, you had an incident in Andijan, where there was a kind of local, a small local rebellion, and the Uzbek forces sort of gunned down a crowd and hundreds were killed. And this led to very sharp critics, criticisms from the Western governments about what the central, about what the Uzbeks were doing, and it led to the sort of ejection of American military bases from Uzbekistan that were being used in Kashi Kanabad, um, you know, and then to 2010 when you had a kind of uprising in Kyrgyzstan, uh, which the West kind of said was great and was going to, you know, democratic order reestablish itself, you know, and this kind of push towards kind of, you know instability in the region or basically overturning of the established order was always a kind of concern that lingered in the Central Asians' minds. Um, and so having a kind of American security footprint right on their border gave them a sense of concern that maybe this could be used to help, uh, you know, uh, create instability there. But as I say, it's always a balance that goes back and forwards. And I think what you've seen since the kind of fall of Kabul to the Taliban is actually a willingness by the Central Asians to sort of play a game where they appear to want to let the Americans or Western presence kind of still be there in some sort of way. And you let them continue to allow this kind of narrative flow that Washington is talking to, particularly the Tajiks and the Uzbeks, about maybe using uh, their countries as some sort of forward operating base. I've heard very little from the ground that this is actually happening, <laughs> uh, but certainly I wouldn't. it's possible. And, you know, and certainly the Americans had given, you know, substantial security support to uh, Tajik uh, police forces over the past few years, to border forces over the past few years. They support a lot of missions through the OSCE, through UNODC, through others to help kind of strengthen uh, security footprints on the ground. And the locals appreciate this because it's sort of helping them. And it's also broadening the options that they have so they don't have to just rely on either Russian security presence or now an increasing kind of Chinese one. So there's always a desire to you know, cultivate and welcome a kind of American presence, but it's always balanced against a concern of how far that might go and what might it ultimately sort of lead to. And I think going forwards, you're gonna to continue to see that kind of tension and balance play out, uh, both internally because of concerns there, but also because of I think Russian and Chinese concerns, which I think are gonna become more acute going forwards. Thank you, Raffaello. And now I have two questions from Antonio, and I will put uh, the question together. What, the first is from Max. Uh, you mentioned uh, the global agenda of IS Khorasan. What is your outlook uh, on the future development of the organization? Will it develop into an external threat outside Afghanistan? And how much are the Taliban really in control of Afghanistan? And it linked with the other question. Antonio, you were recently quoted in Reuters article saying, ISK are trying to undermine and discredit the Taliban Emirate. The Emirate promised security and they are trying to show they can deliver it. What do you see as the eventual outcome of this struggle? The article also went on to quote some concern in the West over these developments. What options are open to them besides the over-the-horizon effort which Biden proposed and everyone has since derided? Well, um, of course, the Islamic State in principle always has a global agenda. And even if Khorasan now, is actually fighting for its survival 
you know, because, you know, they, they know perfectly well, and I think they're right, that if they allow the Taliban to consolidate a little bit and to kind of resolve some of the financial issues, at least next spring, you know, when, you know, now we are going towards winter and it's in many of the areas where the Islamic State has got its bases in the valleys and the mountains, uh, there is, there's no, you know, basic access is, is even harder than usual. So it's not the time to go on a military offensive anyway. But next spring, after the snow melts, uh, the, in all likelihood, the Emirates will uh, be in a position to crush the bases, you know, the, the headquarters of the Islamic State in Khorasan. Now, the Islamic State largely operates now as an underground uh, asymmetric force, as a guerrilla force, essentially, content to what it used to do in the past. You know, in the past, it was doing like conventional battles in the East for control, for territorial control. In the last couple of years, it's given up on that. But still needs bases, you know, for training camps at courts where to run is admin, is finance. And these are now uh, the main base now is in Nuristan, which is the most remote part of Afghanistan. Uh, they had a base in Badakhshan, which has been moved out because they fear that it's very exposed now. Uh, and centrally, they fear that the Russians, together with the Taliban, might want to go after that because this course is in Kasak Valley and, and it's uh, very much in the you know, uh, aim of uh, the the Russian and the Chinese. Uh, so they are afraid about a joint you know, campaign or some airstrikes plus Taliban forces uh, moving up the valley. They, they fear they wouldn't be able to, to resist. Um, and, and, and that's why they moved to more remote area like Nuristan. Uh, they also have some bases near Nuristan in, in Kunar, you know, in the upper valleys. So, uh, these are bases that uh, are essential. You know, they can't operate without some kind of, the leaders have to be somewhere, you know, they can't be hiding uh, in, uh, and actually when they try to do that, as an was captured in, uh, in a flat in Kandahar, you know, so it's not viable for them to keep the leaders hiding in the cities, uh, sooner or later will be captured. You know, they need to have camps under their own military control. And that's where most of the forces concentrate, you know, most of their men are now defending these bases. So, uh, for the Islamic State, the priority is surviving. Now, it's seen as being on defensive. It is on defensive, but it's because they think, you know, if you don't attack now and we comprehend the consolidation of the Emirate, we are finished. You know, they will crush us. They will destroy our bases. They can do that. And they know that because the Taliban, at that point, would be able to concentrate the best units as they did in 1920, where they destroyed the previous, uh, captured the previous headquarters of the Islamic State in Nangar, you know, and that was also in a very difficult location where the Americans couldn't get. You know, the Americans sent the special forces in in support of the Afghan army to take those bases, but they never managed to completely take uh, Mumban Valley in Nangar. The Taliban did, you know, so the understanding within the Islamic State is, you know, we need to spend our residual energy, basically, to go on the offensive to undermine the Emirate. And undermining means centrally discrediting it. They're also trying to provoke uh, the Taliban into some kind of uh, indiscriminate repression, and that may work because, for example, now clearly the Emirate is running death squads uh, in eastern Afghanistan, hunting uh, Islamic State cells. But of course, in the process, they also hang a few probably innocent people. You know, they are executing people without trials, so there's always you know uh, leading to abuses and and. Uh, uh, let's call it, uh, you know, arbitrary executions. Uh, and also, you know, the, the targeting of the Dara community, clearly the Islamic State is trying to push them towards 
arming themselves, you know, for self-protection. The Taliban will not allow that. You know, the Taliban will not allow the Azara community to form its own army or militia independent of the Taliban, also because the relation between Adars and Emirates are not good either, you know. So uh, if they try to do that, the Taliban would react, they would crush them. And then the course could uh, be one step, uh, one st further step towards, you know, some kind of wider insurgency, which will not be related at all to the Islamic State, but doesn't matter for the Islamic State, if other insurgencies start as a relief, because you know, then the Taliban would have to disperse uh, their forces and won't be able to focus their energy against the Islamic State. Uh, and uh, at the same time, of course, they are trying to discredit uh, the Taliban in the eyes of potential donors and supporters as a force that can bring stability to Afghanistan. You know, they're trying to uh, uh, make some of these countries that they see as likely to provide support for the Emirate doubt that the Emirate is actually the vehicle that could implement or defend their interests. Like, for example, sending a Uyghur suicide bomber to blow up a uh, Shia mosque in, in Kunduz, uh, I think is a signal, you know, to the Chinese, you know, that these guys actually can uh, deliver what you uh, what you need, and therefore they're trying to delay, you know, the moment when this kind of uh, support starts flowing. Probably they can delay it forever, uh, but you know, the more they delay, the, the, the more they they can buy time, the, the more they can uh, the offensive can can keep going, and they the more the Taliban will be constrained in the ability uh, to react. Because, for example, if the Taliban were getting more support from the outer world, they could do better in terms of rehabilitating some kind of air force. And then, you know, taking this remote mountain valley will be easy with helicopters, uh, firing supplies and, uh, and troops, you know, to, to, to behind actually uh, Islamic state lines, for example. So there are many ways, you know, uh, where even um, delaying the delivery of support can give more breathing space for the Islamic State to to do its thing. So, so yes, definitely, um, the Islamic State is uh, trying to undermine the Emirate because they see that now is the time, you know, that um, post-revolutionary, if you like, consolidation will follow one way or another, and that will be very bad for the Islamic State. In terms of you know the threat that the Islamic State poses beyond Afghanistan, because now they're so much focused on surviving, protecting their uh, quarter and their core areas and their leadership inside the country, I don't think that's a priority. And I don't think the priority is uh, doing you know something in Central Asia or whatever. Uh, first of all, it's very difficult, you know, because in moving people across the Tajik border is very hard. Uh, you can move some people, but probably in the range of tens per year. So that way you don't start really a, a jihad in Tajikistan on, on, on this basis. Um, also, they don't have that many people. You know? the, the Islamic State source admit that in the, in the entire Central Asia, they have several hundred members, but that means not only people who can blow things up, you know, but also, you know, um, recruiters, uh, logisticians, you know, uh, support elements. So basically, uh, between Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and, and Uzbekistan, is not a lot. You know, having seven, eight hundred members in total, it means that probably the people can do things are fifty or a hundred between three countries. You know, so it's not, you know, a force that can start a significant 
uh, jihad or campaign in Central Asia, maybe the occasional attack, yes, you know, but not much more than that. So they, the capabilities are limited and they uh, would have to invest a lot of resources you know, to move cards into Central Asia would imply losses because some of them would be caught, you know, would be detected. Uh, and right now they think that these guys are more useful in protecting the Islamic State in, inside Afghanistan. Same with Iran, you know, Iran centrally uh, would be very good to a strike in, uh, in Iran because that brings money. You know, there are people in the Gulf who get very excited every time something's blown up in Iran and therefore they would be willing to support the Islamic State if they could uh, demonstrate capacity to do further attacks. You know, you know, they did in the past, but now for years they've not been able to do anything. Uh, if they could do something, it would be beneficial for the Islamic State. They would certainly bring funding, but it's not that simple, you know, because to move people into Iran is not that simple. You know, you can't uh, do operation across the board in Baluchistan, but to strike at substantial targets uh, in Tehran or, you know, at the center of the Islamic Republic is much more difficult. And when they did it once, they suffered quite a lot of losses afterwards in terms of, you know, cards and, and support structure being de detained, uh, executed, and whatever. So they don't have... Uh, uh, the ability nor have the priority of doing that much in, in, in these areas. Pakistan is different, and to be honest, I'm not totally sure why they established this Vilaya Pakistan at a time when Khorasan was already struggling, because that reduced the amount of funding going to Khorasan, and also quite a lot of people of Khorasan province were moved to Vilaya Pakistan. And then they started operation there that actually undermined uh, the relationship the tolerance, so to speak, that the Pakistani services had for the Islamic State in Khorasan. You know, of course, when the Pakistani army saw the Islamic State was carrying out operation inside Pakistan, they started wondering whether, you know, it was the right vehicle to put pressure on the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. Now that the Islamic Republic is gone, they don't really have any reason uh, for, for supporting uh, or even tolerating Islamic State activities, and they've been clamping down on their camps inside Pakistan. Uh, so it's quite surprising. Probably I would imagine there's a line of funding there that somebody uh, has opened you know, for sectarian attacks in Pakistan. Uh, I, I believe there are people in the Gulf, again, who believe that there's worthy cause, uh, but that actually has been um, detrimental to the cause of Khorasan. So that's, that's where they can play a role you know, in Pakistan, but again, uh, I think that they're probably going to keep the resources in Afghanistan. In fact, they move people out of Pakistan into Afghanistan to defend their bases. You know, they had 1.2,000 men uh, in Pakistan, but half of them at least have moved back uh, to Afghanistan to help, you know, shore up the defense of their bases. So I think they are, uh, we have to, the, the main point, you know, survival now is a priority for them because, of course, if they get smashed, then all these other nice campaigns, jihads, they talk about in the region, they're not gonna happen. You know, you don't even have a leadership. You don't have any logistics. All of these things are gonna die. You know, where, how are you gonna infiltrate Central Asia if you don't have any more presence in Afghanistan? So it's all dependent on, on that. Iran is also infiltrated from the Kurdistan side, but Central Asia can only be infiltrated from Afghanistan. Um, in China, you know, I think very little goes on in terms of infiltration there, you know, but if it was to happen, it would have to come from Afghanistan. So 
um, so in terms of uh, projecting any threat beyond the region, that I think is uh, science fiction. I think the Islamic State, uh, if the Islamic State has assets that can carry out attacks in Europe, I don't see why they would send them to Afghanistan. I mean, you know, if, if they exist, they're in Syria, in Turkey, maybe in West Africa. Why would I, from West Africa or from Syria, from Turkey, send somebody to Afghanistan if my target is Europe? I mean, it's much better to keep them where they are. You know, the access will be much easier uh, and probably they are less at risk of being killed. Uh, so unless these cards have some role to play in the defense uh, or in the campaign against the Emirate, but if they are trained cells who can carry out uh, sophisticated attacks, terrorist attacks, say, in Europe, I mean, as a, if I was a European security uh, policymaker, I would be relieved if they moved to Afghanistan because it means they probably are going to be used somewhere else, not, not in Europe, you know? So I think the Americans are different because the Americans have this obsession um, especially politicians, you know, for them, even the suspicion that something happened in America could be originated somehow, have something to do with Afghanistan, send them crazy, you know, because of the 9-11 heritage, you know, they, that, that is an obsession they have. And anything happened in America, probably somebody, you know, if the Democrats are in power, probably Fox News will allege that it, it came from Afghanistan. If the Republicans are in power, it will be CNN. But you know, because of the uh, the politics there being very partisan, uh, I think there will always be allegations, you know, regardless of the evidence that something somehow Afghan is involved. But in practical terms, doing attacks in in, a, in in America, why do I need Afghanistan? You know, the the the, the uh, one was different because Al Qaeda didn't have this wide network. The Islamic State didn't even exist. You know, now both of them have assets and, and presence in areas where you know access to Europe in particular, but also America would be much easier. I think if you are a Turkish member of either organization with a Turkish passport, it's much easier to get sent it to Europe. You don't need to do much, but even to America, you know, why would I need an Afghan to do that? Yes, they could use some of this um, flow of uh, refugees to infiltrate people, um, but do I want to send skilled CAD uh, to Europe uh, in the hope that somehow they get naturalized. And to be honest, I many of these people will actually make it, you know, because the, the gates are already closing down. So people who are being evocated have a record of uh, working for the government, working for foreign embassies or foreign organizations. It is possible, I suppose, to infiltrate somebody there, but the, the gate is already closed. You know, uh, the people who got the papers, I've got the papers. Now, doing it now is going to be difficult, perhaps not impossible, perhaps they can, they can smuggle somebody through. But to be honest, you know, having probably thousands of members uh, in Turkey, would, I think gives, you know, if everybody has to worry about these things, better worry about Turkey than, you know, about, about Afghanistan. And I received another question uh, uh, is not addressed, uh, but I think Raffaello will be the right person because the question is, should Singapore be more worried now? Um, I mean, uh, I think, you know, it's a very appropriate question for, for an audience and for an institution like MEI uh, based in the US. I mean, look, I think that there is clearly more instability now in Afghanistan 
and in its kind of immediate neighborhood. And it has clearly changed a dynamic there. And it has created a dynamic, a context where, frankly, militant groups are more likely to be able to operate once again. And if we go back and look at history, we could see that 9-11, um, you know, did produce, you know, 9-11 was produced in this context in the past. And I know it's always, you know, as Antonio correctly points out in some ways, you know, 9-11 was a particular marker and a particular incident. And for the whole chain of events that led to that particular incident to replicate themselves would be difficult to happen once again. But it did happen. And there was, of course, echoes from that, which did happen in Southeast Asia. So there is a degree to which I can understand why concerns might be elevated. But I would also say that the context is totally different. You know, the awareness and understanding of how threats can emanate out from a place like Afghanistan and echo in the West or echo in a place like Singapore are, are very different, frankly. You know what I mean? And our, our security capability has changed. Our security forces are much more tuned to these threats and much more tuned to be able to watch out for them. Um, I think the part that people should worry about more is how much this instability is going to spill into the neighbor, into its immediate neighborhood, and how much that chaos might then cause, you know, concatenations of problems, which might ultimately echo elsewhere. I think that's the kind of preeminent uh, side of the threat picture I would see. Um, but I think, you know, immediately sitting in Singapore, I don't think there's much reason to get more preoccupied now than you maybe were previously uh, before the fall of Kabul, because ultimately events in Afghanistan are far from here, frankly, and the connections are uh, quite limited. Um, I would also very briefly like to touch on, on the kind of broader potential for the ISK threat to come out, because I mean, I agree entirely with Antonio. Again, the whole chain of events which would have to happen for, you know, a, a cell from Islamic State and Khorasan to make it to Europe, to make it to the United States, to make it to Singapore, to launch a kind of large scale sophisticated attack along the lines of, you know, heaven forbid what we saw on 9-11 or even something along the lines of what we saw in Paris or London or Madrid or something like that, you know, um, or even Bali, um, you know, it's quite a long chain. <laughs> a lot of things have to happen before that actually happens, right? But I think what I would point to is an observation that we see particularly in Europe, which is that if you go back and look over the past few years, um, and I say, I think going back to maybe 2016, um, there have been a couple of incidents in Europe where we've either had a terrorist attack, there's an incident in Stockholm, uh, or there was a network in Germany of Tajiks um, who were talking to people who were linked to the Islamic State in Afghanistan. Um, and these guys were talking to each other. Now, it's not clear the degree to which ISK was directing these guys to launch attacks, or how much these guys were just talking to IS, and it happened to be IS in Khorasan province because you know, the Central Asians were there and these are the people they were communicating with. But there have been some links off the battlefield, but it is more in terms of this kind of new form of threat that you can see, which is fighters talking to each other. And so within that context, you can see the potential for an incident to take place. I think Europe is probably the most obvious one immediately because we've got a track record of it there. And there is, if you go look at the last sort of networks, the large scale worrying networks that have been disrupted in Europe, they have had links to kind of former Soviet communities, to networks of, from the Balkans with links to networks from the Caucasus, with links to networks from Central Asia, you know, who do tend to have more connections potentially to Afghan and ISK than others. Um, you know, you have seen some sort of connections there that have ultimately, you know, led to attacks. And I'm thinking now of the, you know, Vienna attack in 2020, which was from this sort of community of, you know, uh, first or second generation Balkans and Caucasians uh, living in Europe, some of whom had links to, you know, IS in Syria, but also IS in Afghanistan. So 
there is that potential threat that could emerge, but I think that's very different to the sort of threat that I think people often conceptualize, which is, you know, a group of five guys trained in a camp somewhere in, you know, I don't know, Nuristan and then sent back with sort of marching orders to launch uh, some sort of large scale attack somewhere. That is, I think, far off. The only final point I'd add on this is a comment on, um, on the kind of American particular perspective, because recently we saw, I think, uh, uh, what was it, the Assistant Secretary or Deputy Secretary for Policy, Colin Carl, put a six month timeline on the potential ISK threat coming, you know, hitting the mainland. And I just add a point of, uh, you know, comment on that particular reference, which is, you know, it's worth looking at those comments in detail because he doesn't say in six months, ISK will attack us. What he says is that it would roughly take six months for ISK to develop the capability to potentially attack us. But what he also says is, of course, we are keeping pressure on the group. <laughs> directly as well as trying to indirectly through others and you know the point would be that six month timeline only exists if nothing else happens and of course a lot else is happening which is a lot of external pressure and a lot of attention by the united states to make sure that this threat doesn't mature and i think the six month timeline is offered in counter to the one year timeline that they put one to two years timeline that they put on aq and i think that's more connected to the fact that i think the united states has a kind of probably deeper understanding of penetration and overwatch of um, AQ networks and potential threats that might emanate from that, whereas they don't necessarily have that same sort of developed capability yet with ISK. So I think it's always worth remembering that when we see officials, security officials give these kinds of numbers and timelines, it's really more a reflection of their capability rather necessarily than a reflection of the exact nature of when the threat is going to strike. So I just want to throw that briefly in. Thank you. Yes, as you mentioned, and also the U.S. predicted the Afghan National Army was able to resist alone for three years, or worst case scenario, 18 months. If I recall correct, it was 11 days. So having said that, I move to a question for Antonio from my colleague James Dorsey. Uh, can Antonio talk about the different in Taliban relationship with different militant groups, including Al-Qaeda, Tariq Taliban Pakistan, and other Pakistani based groups? Well, um, there is no unified uh, Afghan Taliban approach to any of these groups. Uh, they, uh, simplifying a little bit, the Southern Taliban uh, are the ones who were trying to formulate uh, a policy uh, of, uh, if you like, reforming their relationship with the foreign jihadists in general. And then includes not only the Pakistani al-Qaeda, but also the Central Asians and the others. And that started after they signed this agreement with Americans in, uh, in February 2020. And it took some time to formulate it, whereby the summer they were proposing, they're offering uh, revised agreements with all of these groups, you know, that the agreements before. The revised agreements were tightening control over these groups, and were highlighting the need for these groups to uh, uh, relocate in some cases and register the members, not only the groups, but every single member with the Taliban, and also uh, uh, come under Taliban control in terms of movement. So basically, if they wanted to leave their assigned area of uh, residence, they had to uh, authorize the movement with the Taliban leadership. So quite tight control over them. So the deal basically was, you know, you uh, are granted asylum in Afghanistan under the Emirate, but 
uh, you have to give up on your, your you know, exporting jihad from Afghanistan towards well, wherever, you know. Um, very few groups accepted that, you know, the, the faction of the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, which is in the Northwest, accepted it also because they didn't have much of a choice, you know, they are completely embedded in the Taliban. Uh, they live in Taliban camps, their families with them, so they're not mobile, they're not, they were not in a position to migrate from the area, so they signed the agreement. And also Lashkar Jangri, which is one of these Pakistani groups, which has uh, uneasy, so to speak, relations with the Pakistani government, is not in a position to say, we don't let the Taliban, we go back to Pakistan, because some of them will be prosecuted there, you know, there are different factions, Lashkar Jangri, different individuals, sometimes they cooperate with the Pakistanis, some of them are, you know, they, they, they would be probably put in jail if they went back. So they also signed because they felt that it's better to have a safe haven in Afghanistan. So basically the four, 500 Lashkar Jangri members in Afghanistan are people who have issues. You know, they've done things that they would uh, probably lead them uh, in, in, to jail in Pakistan. There are many others who are in Pakistan, they're they are okay because they're not broken Pakistani law, they're not, you know, crossed the path of the Pakistani security services. And then the other group that signed was Lashkari Taiba, another Pakistani group, but Lashkari Taiba, for them, it was just a symbolic agreement because basically uh, Lashkari Taiba doesn't need to be in Afghanistan. It's only in Afghanistan to support the Taliban on the request of the Taliban themselves and of the Pakistani security services. So they, they can go back to Pakistan whenever they want. In fact, you know, at the time when they signed, there were not that many uh, inside Afghanistan. Uh, then a lot went into Afghanistan uh, during the final campaign of the Taliban against the Islamic Republic. I understand that some of them are going back. Um, they, they didn't have a problem in Pakistan at all. Like they have very good relations with the Pakistani security service. So I think they signed the agreement basically to provide the Good example that the Taliban could advertise, look, you know, Lashkar Taiba is signed, you should sign as well. But they didn't need any agreement because their long term plan is to leave Afghanistan altogether. You know, they don't need to be there at all. Um, the other groups, including Al Qaeda, some groups uh, are flatly refused even to discuss, like Imam Bukhari Jamaat, they, they refused. Some other groups bought time that the GDP, Al Qaeda didn't say no, but they said not disagreement, but let's keep talking. Uh, they really didn't want to sign, but at the same time, they didn't want to alienate the Taliban for obvious reasons. Then what happened is that the uh, US-Taliban agreement started um, getting lost, basically. You know, they, uh, the two sides started accusing each other of compliance. The, the timeline of the withdrawal became unclear, so the Taliban stopped trying to push this agreement through, and nothing was heard about them after the summer, you know. There was no pressure on this group to sign. And now what you see now is something new, you know, that the Southern Taliban uh, are actually happy to have the TTP there as a tool of pressure on Pakistan, relations are very good with the Pakistanis, so the Southern Taliban think they need some leverage uh, in, in, in negotiating with them. Whereas the Akhanis have been asked by the Pakistan authorities to mediate between them and TTP, and this mediation is, is now going on. And as you know, yesterday a society was agreed for a month, uh, and some prisoners are being released. You know, so uh, there is uh, this kind of dichotomy where the TTP feels closer to the Southern Taliban, but at the same time, they can say no to the Afghanis. 
and some southern Taliban have broken ranks and also came out in support of the negotiations or, or compromise. So um, I would say a bit like, you know, I, I, did, I said before with the Uyghurs, the solution that the Khanis would and probably Al-Qaeda would promote uh, for the foreign jihadists is some kind of either settlement or migration where possible. So in the case of Pakistan, it would be it would be a settlement and uh, they would uh, they would uh, probably um, kind of uh, uh, encourage both sides to agree on uh, the tribal areas of Pakistan becoming, you know, um, Islamized, so to speak. And that would also help the Akhanis because it would create some kind of, you know, strategic debt for themselves. But also would advertise the Akhanis as, again, you know, the guys who have the solution, you know, uh, a solution that, well, for me, doesn't make everybody that happy, but a solution that, you know, is the only possible compromise. Um, if the Pakistanis were willing to accept this, you know, that could be a template for other solutions, for other negotiated schemes where the foreign jihadists somehow they, they are sorted. Um, and I think that's what, where they're going. Al-Qaeda, I think, agrees with this. You know, Al-Qaeda doesn't particularly need to be in Afghanistan. You know, the leaders are actually in Pakistan. Uh, the, the leaders are Al-Qaeda central. Of course, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic subcontinent uh, is to some degree a different thing, but uh, I think they're also the leaders in that case are also in Pakistan. They have some kind of understanding with the Pakistani authorities, and the understanding is you don't do anything here, maybe help a little bit trying to sort out relations between Islamabad and various jihadist groups. If you do something, you do it in India or in Kashmir. Okay, so on that terms, which are not ideal for Al Qaeda, but you know, uh, it works. Uh, similar to the agreement they have with the Iranians, you know, where the Iranians say, we don't do anything here. If you do something in the region, you're very good. Um, maybe some other places, but as long as you don't do it here, it's fine. And maybe sometimes they can also help them if there is some shared um, interest. Um, so this is the model, I think, that they are following. Um, Al-Qaeda, anyway, is a very small organization itself. You know, it's all based, it's a bit like the commentary, you know, it's not is an organization of cards whose job is to advise and train uh, jihadist groups. Then the impact can vary from place to place, you know, but a bit like the commenter, you know, had a lot of influence on Indian nationalists uh, against the British Empire. Yeah, the three people advising the Indian, the Congress, you know, and had a lot of influence over them. Uh, and some of the ideology of the Congress party came also from there, you know, the, the socialist component. So that is a kind of idea, you know, basically you do trans and know-how, organizational know-how, uh, if you like ideological know-how, you know, how to come up with the coherent ideology, which is not always that easy. That's the role. And if you look at the papers from Abbottabad, is what the Al-Qaeda guys were doing with the Pakistani jihadists, with the Taliban, or trying to do, you know, because not all of them were so receptive. And TTP initially was not so receptive. They found a lot of problems in trying to kind of, you know, coach them. Now with the current leadership, it seems to be that they found this kind of alignment. And I think it's Al-Qaeda's interest also because they're under pressure from the Pakistani authorities as well to kind of bring TTP back into the fold, you know. Uh, of course, they also would like, you know, uh, some concession to be made with the TTP to make this workable. Uh, the 
uh, the, the Taliban in general have good relation with Lashkar Taiba, uh, and the Lashkar Taiba actually helped them a lot, sending more than ten thousand volunteers to fight uh, in May, June, July, August. Some are still there, and some have been fighting also against the Islamic State. You know, so they they've been quite supportive. Um, and uh, then there are, of course, a variety of other groups, some of which have helped the Taliban in the past, then they've disappeared. Jaish Mohammed has not been seen recently. It's not clear what happened to them, but they used to have people in Afghanistan, but they not participated in the recent uh, fighting. Right now, the Taliban have relations only with TTP, Lashkari Jangvi, and Lashkari Taiba, and they are good relations. Um, and uh, uh, they, they're trying to be, so to speak, you know, constructive in this relationship, but the issue remains how to reach some kind of settlement uh, at the regional level, how to deal with these groups, you know, when they are opposed to their uh, own governments. Thank you very much, uh, Antonio. And I think I, I have to apologize with the audience because I have still several questions to ask to both Raffaello and Antonio, but uh, we arrived at the end of our time. And uh, I just want to thank uh, our two presenters and our audience for being with us. Uh, uh, thank you and enjoy a great day. Bye.